0: I want to welcome you to something a little different than the normal Noise Creators podcast in that this is going to actually be a chapter from the audiobook of my last book, Processing Creativity. They say if you love something, then you have to set it free. So that's exactly what I'm doing. A year ago, I put out this book and I really want it to keep spreading to people. And I realized one of the ways you have to do that sometimes is by making it free. So from right now till July 1st, this book will be free and a different chapter of it will come out every week for the next few weeks. And It'll stay available for free till July 1st, and then I'm going to delete these podcasts. As well during this time, the Kindle book will be 99 cents, but the physical book will remain at the regular price because, you know, they cost money to print. So enjoy this free audiobook. It's a very similar subject to what you hear on this podcast most of the time. And if you enjoy it, please, please, please pay it back. You know, this book usually costs almost $20 on Audible. The way you can pay it back is just telling somebody else who will enjoy it about it. It's really important to me that these ideas spread, and that's why I'm doing this. So I hope you enjoy it, and I hope you spread the word. Thank you. Hey, before we get started, I want to tell you about Manic Merch, who's sponsoring this podcast. They want you to stop selling merch like an idiot. In 10 minutes, you can upload designs and sell merch with your own store of every popular merch item, while Manic Merch handles sales, shipping, customer service issues, so that creators can create and not be bothered while still profiting the way they would if they did it themselves. Manic Merch is perfect for musicians, movies, YouTubers, podcasts, meme makers, startups, and anyone else who has good ideas for merch designs. Let me tell you about some of the key features of Manic Merch. You can set up a store in minutes for no money down. All you have to do is upload your merch designs and tell us how much you want to make off each one and we'll take care of the rest. You can avoid all the headaches of customer service emails, packing up packages, and heading to the post office. There's no financial risk since you put no money down or headaches for you to start selling merch. Fans buy more merch when they get to choose how to express themselves. You can upload your merch designs and sell more merch by allowing fans to choose the colors and what they want them printed on. Whether it's t-shirts, sweatshirts, lighters, hats, or coffee mugs, they have over 20 different items that you can print on. You get to set your own prices where you can lower your prices if you want to sell more and raise them if you want to make more from each sale. You can also get the email of everyone who buys from you and you get paid every month on time and you also have the ability to track sales. Stop selling merch like an idiot and sign up for a store at ManicMerch.com today. Chapter 4. Finding Your Voice and Intent If all you want to do is sound like someone else, playing in local cover bands is often more lucrative than performing original music. Most of us grow up trying to sound like our favorite musicians, but with age, we gain emotions we want to express in our songs, just like those we admire. If you're interested in expressing your emotions, you need to figure out who you are to express yourself. Knowing this enables you to make an authentic expression of yourself. To do that, some exploration of who you are can help you gain an understanding of your character and can make what you should express easy to decipher. Finding Your Unique Voice For some, Finding their voice isn't a hard process, but for others, it takes some digging inside for what's compelling to you. New age gurus call this finding yourself or talk about self-exploration. Instead, I think of finding your voice as a process where you try to find what's emotionally resonant to you and how it gets expressed so others understand it. When you speak, you use a certain vocabulary, along with speed, accent, and dynamics that makes up the sound of your voice. Your voice contains parts that are naturally a part of who you are, as well as part of others who you've picked up details from. When you express yourself musically, you do the same thing, forming a collage of who you naturally are that also picks up small qualities from others that you use to convey what you think about each day. Voice is a larger metaphor. An overlooked aspect of singing is that we're all commonly doing an imitation of someone else's singing style. The sounds we make when we sing usually come in the form of an affected accent or pronunciation of words that's far from the way we actually talk. A singer's voice isn't one absolute sound. In fact, many singers are capable of doing various inflections with their voice. These inflections can make them sound English when they're from the Bay Area, Green Day. Loud, confident, and audacious when they sing, yet their speaking voice sounds nothing like that, Michael Jackson. An alien with an odd accent, Kendrick Lamar, and the list goes on. It's a rare occurrence when a singer sings or raps the same way they talk. Each singer is picking up accents, turns of phrase, inflections, melodies, and vocabulary from those they admire and blending it into a performance that hopefully sounds unique to themselves as well as furthering an emotion they're exuding. By forming a collage of what they've enjoyed that furthers their expression, they build a signature of their own. While there are some parts of your voice that are naturally embedded in who you are physically and genetically, we have countless ways to change that timbre. This isn't to say that their most authentic voice is singing exactly how their talking voice sounds. In fact, it can be highly creative to affect a voice that gives your performance even more emotional resonance. All these affectations, when employed to give more resonance, can be the best way to enhance an emotion in a vocal performance. Tom Waits' application of treating his voice with so many different affectations, the same way he treats the manipulation of the instrumentation in his music, is part of what makes it so unique and resonant. The Clash's masterful use of different voices traded off between the three singers of the group furthers the storytelling quality of their songs. Most vocalists are singing with an inflection that they've found naturally from singing along to their favorite music. When we talk about finding your creative voice, this concept isn't ironically named. Finding your voice is how you incorporate your influences into your vocals and bring them into the sound of your voice. This voice is both figuratively and metaphorically one of the biggest factors that defines your sound. This same voice goes for nearly every choice you make in the instrumentation of your music or the production. Choosing to figure out how to find a palette that accentuates your emotional resonance instead of imitating gives you a unique voice instead of an imitation. Finding what's in your heart. Select only things to steal from that speak directly to your soul. If you do this, your work and theft will be authentic. Authenticity is invaluable, originality is non-existent, and don't bother concealing your thievery. Celebrate it if you feel like it. In any case, always remember what Jean-Luc Godard said. It's not where you take things from, it's where you take them to. Jim Jarmusch. Writing that above title is hard for me. Since talking about the heart doesn't come easily, as I'm the classic stereotype of a man who has difficulty expressing his emotions in words. We call our emotional expression the heart, since the phrase has become synonymous with saying passion. Passion tells us what we're supposed to write about as well as what emotions to evoke in music. Figuring out the emotions you're feeling and how to express them is the most determinative way to figure out what you should be writing, since what you're experiencing is inherently one of your passions. Expressing what's emotionally resonant in you is not only one of the best ways to help heal emotional faults, but it's also a tool to help understand why you are feeling this way. Feeling an emotion that's overwhelming is commonly cured with the catharsis of writing music that shifts the mood into a deeper place. Sigmund Freud theorized that we're all emotionally repressed, so the only way to get us to a better place mentally is to express these emotions. This expression is what's at the heart of most of the emotionally powerful songs you've enjoyed. This expression is also what's missing when you hear songs that have no emotional resonance despite doing similar things to other songs you love. The players made a sound that was probably an imitation of other music they heard that sounds like a song that was emotionally resonant to them, but they missed the detail that an imitation has no emotional power. Who you are individually will shape your perspiration. Making music that's emotionally resonant to you by using your feelings as a compass alleviates the job of trying to be original by allowing it to be a natural occurrence. When you're fluent in expressing yourself by combining your inspiration with who you are, you're bound to do work that's unique to yourself. Every bit of inspiration you've taken in is unique to you and your life, which is impossible to replicate. Following these emotions leads to new and individual pictures as they get developed, instead of impotent imitations. Many musicians make the mistake of imitating others, expecting their results to be as good as those they imitate, instead of tinkering around until they find music that embodies the emotion they want to express. This isn't to say every piece of music you produce will come to you in an emotional epiphany. It can take hearing a song that's similar to the emotion you want to make and tweaking it until you get the emotional resonance you're looking for. Your expression of your emotions as they've been shaped by those you've learned from is what sets you apart from everyone imitating obvious influences. Frank Turner told me, Everyone starts out as an imitation of someone else. It's by getting it wrong that you come up with your own voice. This quote was paraphrased from Elvis Costello whose quote had a slightly different message, which illustrates this point even further. you also have a different creative output from others than what is encoded in you genetically. Oscar Peterson can reach 18 keys with one hand on the piano, so what he's physically able to do on the piano is more adventurous than others with a smaller key span. A person who's constantly feeling anger is going to have a harder time playing gentle music. When your individual emotional makeup is expressed, it will sound like you as long as you genuinely express it instead of imitating. It's more like jamming two ideas together. Talk of creativity usually says it's all about blending two ideas together by having idea-sex to make a new creation. While this may work for making Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, what's needed to make emotionally resonant music is to let an emotional expression come first by figuring out how to elaborate upon this emotion using musical instruments. Unlike many other forms of creativity, music that's emotionally resonant needs to be more than smashing two ideas together. Let's go back to this Reese's example. Someone like myself who hates sugary foods, I know, I know would never know that this combination tastes good since chocolate doesn't taste good to them. To make Reese's taste good, you need to enjoy these flavors and experiment on how to make this combination taste its best. You can combine the two elements but you'll never be able to figure out if it tastes good without releasing it to the public to get feedback. Since we don't get feedback on our music until we present it to others, we must use what we're passionate about to understand how to make the best decisions for it. If you're not passionate about continually tasting chocolate and peanut butter, the experimenting won't come easy since you're guessing at it. Good music is made by musicians trusting their tastes and emotional makeup. What you enjoy in others can guide you. One of the head's greatest assets is to advise you on interesting treatments to apply into your music. Figuring out approaches to filter your ideas through is part of the mastery of songcraft. By writing down what you love about your favorite creators, you can start to understand how to achieve the greatness you admire in them instead of playing songs that sound like theirs. Take notes on what you love about each one, then think of how you can apply the aspects you love about these musicians to what you do musically. The cover of this book was an exercise in figuring out those who had the greatest impact on my creativity and making a visual representation of it. As an example, here's what my list of recent influences looks like as I write this book. The Clash. Their vocals sound like different characters in a movie singing apart but coming from one singer. Their grooves are either consistently rushing or dragging, making for intense musical emotion. Sophie. Vocals are sung as if they're written to a different groove, yet still have strong hooks. The vocals are pitched to sound like an unidentifiable singer, yet still have a character of their own. Health. The vocals are always breathy and keep a calm and poppiness that make the intense and abrasive instruments listenable. Interesting envelopes on familiar sounding instruments. The 1975. The ability to use unique sounds that don't distract from the vocals. Masterfully calls back classic 80s melody themes and tones while making them sound fresh. White Lung. Use lots of notes that still work well together. Drums are very stiff, yet still feel intense. Huge dynamics from part to part. You can also use this to get out of the decisions where you feel stuck. I'll think about what my heroes would do in a situation that's confusing me. Remembering who I love while finding correlations in their decisions leads me the way I want to go. You can apply this exercise to songs, albums, images, etc. One of the best modern tools for figuring out who you are is to make a playlist of your favorite songs. This allows you to return to what continually moves you to find correlations of what you enjoy from musician to musician and song to song. I keep a playlist called Great Songs that I add to whenever I find a song I never get tired of. Whenever I have a problem with a production, such as having to reconsider the bass lines for a record, I can sit down for an hour or two and get inspired by all of my favorite works to find an inspired solution unique to my tastes. What you don't want to do. Your not-to-do list is just as important as your to-do list. Director David Fincher of Fight Club and Gone Girl fame has said it's much more important to know what he doesn't want to do as opposed to what he does want to do. Knowing what you never want to do can be less restricting, allowing you to be open to finding new inspirations and what you want to do. This allows the heart to do what it wants emotionally. I've done this for my productions and keep it in a Google Doc to revisit from time to time. Here's some of my don't-do rules for record production. Don't make decisions out of expediency. Trace the root of the problem and give consideration. Too much base or trouble is unacceptable acceptable. A balance needs to occur. Words should be pronounced so a listener without a lyric she can understand words, even in the fastest punk songs sung with the worst Boston accent. No vocal should stick out as being more tuned than the others. There should be a consistency to the pitch intonation throughout a song. Bass should not be an afterthought. It should always be what expands or retracts the emotion of a song while working off the vocal as much as possible. Bass that's not optimized or gets buried in a mix is a lost opportunity. Every song should have one tone that's distinct to that song, so when listeners hear it, they feel like it's the only time they've ever heard that tone. Having both a to-do and not-to-do list is a common practice for many musicians, even if they keep them private. Coldplay exposed their list on a 60 Minutes episode where they showed off a list they had on their practice room wall. David Byrne said the talking heads made restrictions on what they would do, like not imitating black singers. Not out of racism, he found it inauthentic. No light shows, and no saying, oh baby, or other rock cliches. One of the Ramones rules was no guitar solos, which was ironically broken on their biggest hit, I Want to Be Sedated. This also teaches a great lesson that you can always reconsider these rules later if you evolve. But they're important to have in the moment as you feel passionate about what you never want to do. What makes you unique? If you're still curious how to develop your voice after you've gained a working knowledge of what you want to do, a healthy exercise can be to figure out how you draw inspiration from what makes you unique. What's something you love no one else loves? How can you incorporate that into your music? What's something everyone else loves that you hate? How do you develop a character from it? What's missing in music, and can you take it to a new level? Try not to barf, as I quote Ayn Rand's short-sighted worldview in The Fountainhead. We create because we're dissatisfied with what already exists. One of the greatest indicators that you should pursue an artistic impulse is when you want to hear a sound that you've yet to hear someone else make. This means you're craving an emotion that's not being expressed. Finding concepts that you haven't seen before that you blend with an emotional intent has made some of the best art throughout time. Pick a fight with an ethic. Voice your disdain for a trend you have an authentic bad reaction to by letting your own work show why this trend is wrong. Taking the time to explore your likes and dislikes to find what you think should exist is one of the most effective ways of finding who you are creatively to develop a unique voice. One of the traits of a great artist is to notice when you don't like a trend and develop a rebellion against it. If I had my way, I'd never put a ballad on a punk record. And if there were ballads I wanted to release, I'd do a record of only ballads. I love records that have a single mood across the whole record. The inclusion of ballads amongst more happy-sounding songs takes me out of the mood of a record, which bothers me. On my own records, I rebel against this by keeping a consistent emotion throughout the record. As long as these rebellions are authentic and not done out of opportunism, it leads to some of the best art in the world. Intent is king and rules all. Intent is the intentional practice of using your heart's feelings to make sure an emotional idea or the way a piece of music feels is continuously reinforced, not contradicted. Since a song's objective is to make an emotional reaction, intent is the guide we follow to shape it to be as resonant as possible. While this is often called vision, I think of vision as the ability to see an intent, but intent is what we see within that vision. It's identifying the emotion you're trying to convey and letting it guide you. While some musicians intend to mimic the excitement they felt in other songs on a dance floor, others feel a certain emotion they want to translate to music that evokes that intent as strongly as possible. Often it's a feeling inside the writer that's difficult to describe that's expressed by pursuing sounds that get closer and closer to the sound of that emotion. When you understand your intent, it could guide the entire creative process whenever there's a decision to be made. If your intent is to evoke a sad song with a happy ending, it's easy to elaborate upon this concept by trying to develop the saddest lyrics and chords that match what you feel. You may then figure out how to seg into a key change that eventually brings a happy ending. Intent ensures your options are focused, giving you a clear way of deciding if a part helps the song get closer to its maximum resonance. Intent allows an emotion, idea, color, or feeling to guide you by letting it make the decisions for you. Musicians commonly make the mistake of writing a set of lyrics to then match it to their most recent beat instead of using a process of emotional elaboration, where they write either a beat or a vocal and then react to the emotion it makes them feel to make both work together. This elaboration is figuring out the emotion of what you're trying to convey by working until the music matches the emotion you're trying to communicate. When fans hear a song where the music seems to match the lyrics in perfect symbiosis, they may assume this was the luck of mashing two ideas together but far more often it's figuring out how to make each part of the music sound like the emotion the songwriter is feeling. One of the first questions most songwriters get asked is, music or lyrics first? While this is a great question, it isn't the least bit determinant of whether they'll make music that's resonant. Instead, it's what they do next. If you choose to mash whatever riff you like best with the lyrics you last wrote, odds are your song will be less resonant since the lyrics and music won't be working together to elicit maximum resonance. Instead of continuing to react to the music lyrics or song title that come first and then again throughout the process, make sure that each decision you make works with the original intent by continuing to react to the music lyrics or song title you wrote first and then throughout each step of the process. This will result in a song that's as potent as possible. A common practice for songwriters is to start off with a riff or a certain turn of phrase in the lyrics. From there, pursuing more parts that further the emotion this starting place conveys is how a song gets shaped for maximum emotional resonance. While the song may take more shape and alter its feel along the way, having this emotional anchor there to guide you to make sure you're adding constructively, not superfluously, allows a song to reach its full potential. It's often said the song tells you what it wants to become, and in practice, this is from following the emotion you feel from a riff or lyric by continuing to build off that emotion. When you're not guided by intent, the creative process is chaotic, lacking a purpose to aim towards. I regularly see musicians trying to craft a song by playing riffs until two seem to go together well enough to move on, instead of thinking how the second riff will further the emotion they're trying to craft. Far too many poorly written songs are made by throwing ideas at the wall and seeing what sticks until a song is completed, or playing the latest set of lyrics with the song your bandmate brought to practice by happenstance, never considering an emotion that's trying to be reinforced. Many artists don't realize they're following intent since it's not a conscious practice. They think the ideas they accept and deny are random, but they possess strong intuition that judges the ideas they hear by whether or not they help reinforce the emotion they're trying to convey. Even if a song flows out of you in an instant without much resistance, taking the time to consider if it can be improved by aligning it more with an intent allows emotional elaboration to guide you instead of poking around in the dark. Intent in your music Intent can also be the overarching theme of what you want to create as a band or under a musical alias. Many gaze upon good-looking, poorly-spoken musicians and assume their greatness is an accident. Growing up, my first musical impressions were hair metal and Sid Vicious, so I felt the same. But after spending time with many great musicians in my adult life, I began to realize this assumption was wrong. Motley Crue and the Sex Pistols might appear as shallow at first glance, although what truly lies beneath is two artists with strong intent. They may have celebrated the shallow side of their endeavors outwardly in music videos and behind-the-scenes documentaries, but there was a consideration of the intent they would evoke in each song as well as their image that can be found in any biography of both groups. When intent is highly considered, it can drive great artistic heights. Producer Pharrell Williams said this of working with Daft Punk. Everything is so concise. There's a reason behind everything. Nothing is done by coincidence, accident, or mistake. There's always a real intention meant to serve a purpose. That quote is the best summation of what it's like to work with a creator with well-developed intent. Every decision is guided by judgments on how they get to their goal. They let their head consider ways of furthering their intent while their heart checks if it's in line with their emotions. They don't record parts for the hell of it. They consider each part as to how it'll assist or deter their intent. Daft Punk themselves say, we thought about our music before we ever made it. They had intent that they needed to express. The seemingly superfluous use of the word superfluous throughout this book. Now it's about the time I discuss a word I use a lot in this book, since it's a very important term to agree on the definition of. So let's turn to Google. Superfluous. Adjective. 1. Unnecessary, especially through being more than enough. Two, the purchaser should avoid asking for superfluous information. Three, synonyms, surplus to requirements, non-essential, redundant, unneeded, excess, extra, to spare, remaining, unused, leftover, in excess, waste, more. Any detail to a production that's not adding to the emotion of a song is superfluous. Understanding superfluousness is important since it's one of the most common creative pitfalls. Superfluous contributions are commonly justified since they'll add more thought to the production. Whether this thought helps further the emotion of a song or not isn't considered, since it's falsely assumed that more will strengthen the song. Musicians commonly add parts for the sake of adding more parts. They ride the volume fader on every track since surely that'll help make a better song. They add harmonies to a vocal since that's what you do. Superfluousness adds to a song by doing more for more's sake instead of emotionally reacting to a deficiency in a song and choosing to act upon it. When you begin to see music through the lens of creating music with the intent to evoke an emotion, you start to notice the flaws in other works, as well as understanding why you don't enjoy certain songs. You hear superfluous parts added that don't help a song's intent. You notice tones that detract from the intent. You begin to understand why a part doesn't work in a song. Adding parts to a song without thought as to how they further the emotional intent of the song doesn't add to it. It detracts by taking away attention to other more emotionally resonant moments. If an addition doesn't help further add to the emotion you're trying to convey, it's superfluous. If you can't hear the difference an idea makes or it adds no emotional content, it's superfluous, unnecessary, and more than enough. Intent gives you the backbone to create. One of the saddest behaviors of musicians is allowing their artistic esteem to be controlled by whoever criticized them last. Intent allows you to take criticism and learn from it, instead of having it be a detraction from what you create. When artists with no intent receive negative criticism, they don't know how to react, no matter what the criticism is. They then become reactive and guess at solutions to please an audience before themselves. With a positive comment, they're elated, but anytime someone doesn't like their music, they sink into self-doubt. They're like a boat thrown around the waters in every direction since without intent, there's no anchor. With the anchor of knowing who you are and the traits you want to embody, you're able to see many criticisms are actually compliments. A lack of a compass means when someone criticizes an artist for the qualities in their music, they lose their backbone by trying to please their critics. I cannot tell you how many times I've seen a band get offended when someone says their music is too spacey. Yet they deliberately decided to write the spaciest songs possible. This is actually an affirmation. While it's not meant as a compliment from the person leveling the criticism, no good art is universal. There will always be those who find certain traits undesirable. But if they describe a trait you want to embody as problematic, I'd chalk it up to a score for your team. It's commonly said that the best art inspires strong reactions of both love and hate since it's emotionally resonant instead of being unremarkable. I'm not saying to ignore all feedback on your music, since feedback is essential to actualizing your vision. If your intent was to write dance jams, but you're hearing the abrasive parts of your sound are distracting from your hooks, it can be worth considering if you're optimizing your mixes as best as possible. Intent allows you to consider this criticism, since without it, you can never tell if both criticisms and compliments are good or bad. One of the toughest balances is to figure out what gives you character and what can be improved on. Intent allows you to have a compass to judge whether each piece of criticism is worth considering towards how you get there. It's crucial to develop intent to avoid being what I call a ping-pong ball that's swayed by whoever's opinion they heard last. If the criticism is positive, everything is great. But if someone puts them down, even about an intentional choice, they react by pleasing the critic. This ping-pong ball bounces around from side to side because since without intent, it's beholden to the last criticism they received. With intent, you're able to take criticism by judging whether it's complimenting your intent, even when it's meant to be derogatory, and grow from it. When you consider your intent for a song, for an album, and as a musician, you have a value system to judge if you should consider a criticism or dismiss it. If you know who you are along with what you're trying to say, it gets far easier to maintain your mental health in a world where everyone can give their opinion about your art in an instant. Pleasing others when you're making the music you want to hear leads to a guessing game that creates music no one else wants to hear, including your critics. When it helps to have no intent. Having an intent that guides you throughout a career can give you purpose. While I emphasize intent throughout this book, there are times where you want to see how a project will develop. While I think emotional intent is imperative to shape a song, having intent in a project can sometimes ground it too early. There are times it could be helpful to explore with no intent in order to discover intent that will guide you later. When starting a new project, it can help to be free of this grounding to see where things go. You can freely explore where a song or a project can go, but when it comes time to draft, edit, and elaborate on your ideas, intent not only makes the work easier, but it allows your song to be guided to its maximum resonance. The key is to consider your intent when it becomes time to make a decision where you need a guidance. Chapter 5. Standards, Taste, and What is Perfect One of the most overlooked aspects of creating is standards. Standards are the line you draw on whether you find an element acceptable to pass your evaluation. A common place you'll hear about standards is in a cheesy rom-com, where a character says, I can't date him, I have standards, meaning that they won't accept some unattractive feature in a mate. This applies all throughout your life, and that standards are what you won't accept below during any critical choice. Whether it's not eating at fast food restaurants, how many days you go without a shower, or how far you'll walk to a destination. Standards are the most crucial barometer you use to make judgments. Standards can be the degree you've memorized a song before you're confident to play it live, or how regularly you mess up a rap before you think you're capable of recording it. It can be whether you'll allow yourself to have a song with only two instruments in it, or if you need it to always be a large arrangement, or even how much work you've put into your vocal melody before you can call it done. It can be the quality of sound that you need to hear to be worthy of releasing. Standards can be found in countless aspects of music, so where you draw the line on each of them makes up much of who you are. Nearly every choice we make while creating music is affected by standards. If you have low standards for how tight your music should sound, you'll never sound as good as someone with a high standard of precision in their performance. If you hold low standards for song form, you'll be excited that you wrote two verses, three choruses, and a bridge, and call it a day. Sadly, this means your songs will get repetitive over the course of an album. You may think you can perform a song on a guitar when you bend strings and rub up against other strings in a chord while picking at inconsistent volumes but a pro guitarist never stops rehearsing until all these flaws are absent from their performances. Standards aren't a metric as much as a judgment of your reaction to listening to a part of a song. There's no line in the sand as strong as a decision in your mind. Over time, you develop a median of what you feel is up to your standards or not. While you can begin to hear how out-of-pocket a part is, and measure it in milliseconds or the decibel reading of how loud an instrument is, these aspects need to be judged, like anything else, by your emotional reaction. They're a judgment of what's appropriate in the context you're presently working in. Each judgment is contextual, since how loose a dirty hip-hop groove is compared to the pulse of a 909 in a techno song can be wildly different when measured in metrics. Developing standards. Developing standards comes from analyzing both your own music as well as others. By taking an inspiration to decide what's acceptable in each of these recordings, you form standards over time as you draw correlations in what sounds right to your ear. In time, you begin to have a barometer of how songs should sound so when it comes time to craft your music, you can make decisions on how close your own work will get to the sounds you love. No one starts out with high standards. You aren't born knowing when a note is out of key, just that they sound less pleasant than the other note choices. In time, you hear how in key most singers you enjoy are, and decide whether to hold yourself to the standards you've observed in others. If you take the time to analyze music as a beginner, You'll notice that you're playing insanely out of tempo, you're flamming chords, etc. Soon after, you start to know when you can play a song based on how sloppy it sounds to you or how regularly you make mistakes. When I started working as a producer, my ability to get good performances was stifled by growing up listening to the loose, incompetent performances of punk records from the 80s and the 90s. I'd accept horrible performances in my productions, since most of what I grew up hearing was sloppy, out of tune, but highly emotional. My peers who grew up on Perfected Hair Metal and Steely Dan were getting way better performances than me since I was playing catch-up on hearing the intricacies of performance. I had to raise my standards of what a good performance is by intentionally listening to music with tighter musicianship to gain this heightened awareness. I now listen to the perfected performances on dance and pop records to remind me of the precision that can exist, so I could judge how far I should go in perfecting parts in a recording. I've come up with many innovative techniques to get even the worst performer to sound good without editing. This could be punching in every single word of a vocal, to coaching a drummer about their fills by punching in two bars at a time while recording. There's a certain level of performance I won't accept below by not calling a song done unless it's up to my standards. Achieving high standards for musicians while not exceeding their budget is what keeps me getting hired as a record producer. Trusting your gut. One of the ways following your heart shows itself is a naturally occurring lack of comfort during the process that tells us a part can be better. We've all heard the saying, Trust your gut being thrown around in all sorts of real-life scenarios when an instinct tells someone to pause to give more consideration before moving forward. The same rom-coms we discussed before are riddled with instances where someone had a bad gut feeling and then regrets ignoring it when that bad feeling turns out to have been a warning of bad things to come. They may convince themselves not to listen to their gut after they find out their love interest was really an escaped convict or whatever cliche these movies are playing out currently, only to regret not trusting their intuition. Within the anatomy of the human body, right next to the heart is the gut and they have a close relationship. Just like our gut feels bad when we taste bad food, it can tell us with a similar feeling when an element is in bad taste musically. When you eat food that's flawed, your gut warns you before you experience heartburn. It sounds the same alarm when your heart isn't feeling right about an element of your music. For example, your gut may tell you that the melody going into the verse can be better, or that a melody can be repeated another time. Learning how to trust this instinct is one of the most essential parts of actualizing great music. Sadly, many artists second-guess it or allow environments where the gut's instincts are shut down by trying to avoid conflict. Listening to your gut and not lowering your standards is how great music gets made. When your gut feels uncomfortable about a part of a song, this is an immediate tip that your standards aren't being met. So you must experiment with other options. When you choose to use the head to convince yourself it knows better than the warning the heart is sending, instead of reacting to what you hear, you defeat the strongest instinct you have for crafting a song. Knowledge of music, whether it's theory, an emotional feeling, or a standard for how good music should feel, allows your gut to know your song isn't quite right yet. Jon Stewart of The Daily Show was known for telling his staff to trust your lack of comfort. If you feel uncomfortable about something, your lack of comfort is an alert that it needs more evaluation. If it doesn't feel up to your standards, you need to keep working until it does. My heart is a compass. One of the other ways trusting your gut is described is your heart is a compass, meaning that you can let it guide you through the decisions you need to make. These internal warning signs aren't always about standards. They can also indicate when you're applying an idea from the head that's diminishing what makes the song emotionally resonant. Whether you're choosing a synth patch or which chord to play, your heart tells you which one feels closer to the emotion you're trying to convey. Using your heart as a compass for the choices you make throughout the process is far more effective than Searching for your candy or a cool part. Your heart keeps a standard of the emotion it feels from your intent, using it to judge every choice you make when composing or sonically treating your song. A Russian proverb I'm particularly fond of is "trust but verify," meaning trust in the artist to make the right decision, but it's okay to question to make sure you're coming up with the best ideas. While superfluous question can slow down momentum, when your bassist affinity for prog rock creeps into your Americana songs, questioning can help you reevaluate your choices to find out there's a better answer. Technically perfect isn't emotionally perfect. Developing standards can go too far when they're judged by technical achievement instead of emotional resonance. When you let the head develop a standard without the heart checking that the head isn't sucking the emotion from it, a lot can go wrong. Musicians will let metrics or exact specifications dictate their decisions instead of what's emotionally resonant. A ballad that tears at you emotionally but is sung with too much perfection feels soulless. However, with a few expressive breaks in the voice and a gritty push to the vocal's tone, it could feel as though a singer's heart is being ripped out. Perfection shouldn't be judged like the answers on a test or a gymnastics performance, since the goal of a musical performance is to enhance the emotion of a song, not to be judged by form. Bikini Kill's rip isn't improved by punching in the vocal until it's perfectly in key. Nirvana's Something in the Way isn't improved by enunciating the lyrics more clearly. The Beatles' Twist and Shout isn't improved when John Lennon's voice is less raspy when it hasn't been singing for 17 hours that day. Public Enemy's Welcome to the Terror Dome groove isn't improved by the samples being more on time. Skrillex's Bangarang EP isn't improved by taking out the distortion. Ghost BC don't become a sicker metal band by making every drum hit exactly on the click track, and Johnny Cash's cover of Nine Inch Nails Hurt isn't better without the breaths between the words. If you read interviews with musicians where they discuss perfection, you'll see two extreme sides. On one side, they'll talk about crafting a song until it's perfect. On the other, they talk about leaving in the flaws because that's what makes music great. The flaws left in songs by many amateur musicians are left since they don't want to play a part again, instead of for qualities that reinforce the song's resonance. In the studio, if a musician doesn't want to redo a take, they'll call upon a quote about how, THE FLAWS MAKE THE TAKE, MAN! But if they want to keep doing more takes, they must not stop when striving for greatness. Musicians constantly use philosophies to convince the head a musical decision works. But the only way to judge if the decision reinforces resonance is checking with the heart. Perfection isn't a metric. It's a balance of having a high enough standard that flaws don't ruin the emotion you're trying to convey while maximizing the elements that make this emotion most potent. If you're work, your music needs to sound as robotic as possible. And if you're the White Stripes, you're trying to sound as raw and loose as you can without being so sloppy it's intolerable. Perfection is measured in finding what works best with your intent by achieving the perfect balance of where each part of your sound should fall so it's most emotionally resonant. It's making music that feels great and embodies as much of the emotion you're trying to convey as possible without sucking the energy out of it by being concerned about imperfections. Perfection is a careful consideration of the emotion you're trying to convey while executing decisions that embody this emotion to its most resonant possible result. It isn't laboring over every detail so it's metrically correct or perfectly enunciated. In practice, this is judging with the heart about whether a quote-unquote flaw emotionally diminishes or or enhances a song. On Manchester Orchestra's Shake It Out, there's a kick drum and bass hit that flams, and it takes me out of the emotion of the song every single time. On Ellis Costello's I Don't Want to Go to Chelsea, the misfrets frets on the guitars drive me mad. The creators of these songs chose to leave these details in the song since they enhance the emotion of the song. While I may be driven crazy by these flaws, I also love the looseness in the vocal performance on each song. The way both songs have vocal doubles that don't always align exactly when the voice adds certain inflections that a more polished singer wouldn't allow, is resonant to me since the performances make the song highly resonant. Every one of these judgments is easily judged by the heart, by hearing a more polished version and deciding whether quote-unquote perfecting them is most resonant. Both of these songs are some of my favorite songs, yet I appreciate some flaws and don't appreciate others. Your standards make up much of who you are and how your music sounds, and when you trust your gut on them, you make music unique to you, even if others may not interpret those flaws to increase a song's resonance. 20 pounds of crap in a 10-pound bag. Just as you can perfect a performance too much, you can also jam it too full of too many great parts to the point where it distracts the listener from being able to focus. Music is a balance of how to work within a constraint, whether that constraint is how many melodies can be played at a time or how long a song is before it's exhausting. Figuring out how to maximize your resonance within these constraints is essential to crafting a great song. One of the most under-discussed parts of music is there can be too many great parts in a song. If you study your favorite songs, you'll find a balance where one or two of the instruments play parts that are playing a supporting role that doesn't call for the listener's attention. A mistake musicians make when trying to perfect a song is to try to make every part catch your ear at the same time. There's only so much a listener can pay attention to, and there's only so much space in a mix. This thought can also go for arrangements. There's a reason that the past few centuries of music still only have rhythm, drums, bass, accompaniment, commonly guitar or keyboard, and melody, usually a vocal or a monophonic lead instrument. There's not room for much more without it being distracting. I point to the Smashing Pumpkins record Siamese Dream, which is praised for its huge sound. When you inspect this record, you find a buried bass track along with tiny cymbals that contrast to bombastic drums and extremely loud guitars, with the vocal as tucked in the mix as possible. Whether you take that to the hip EDM song of the day or the latest prog rock song, there's a tightrope act where one or two parts keep it simple while someone else has attention drawn to them. You can find this balance of give and take in nearly every classic record. Meters and grids are references. One of the most common ways a music fan judges a song is whether it gives them goosebumps or it makes them dance, bang their head, or go into a trance. These metrics are all heart-based reactions to music. One of the biggest mistakes made in music, especially in the early days of Pro Tools, is to put every note on the grid to make them quote-unquote perfect. Whether this grid is a level meter, click track, or auto-tune note readout, these tools are used for you to help gain information about what you're hearing. Music on the grid, whether they're pitch timing or distortion, don't always feel as good for the intended reaction, dancing, head-banging, as music that's not directly on the grid. The tendency to quantize or do other automated functions can work well for certain results, but A-B testing to consider whether these processes enhance or diminish the intent of a song is overlooked. Meters and grids are meant to be references to confirm or dispute what you're hearing, not as guidelines that every element must line up with. You need to trust your ears, not your eyes, to judge what feels good. What looks good is irrelevant since you're the only person who will ever stare at these quote-unquote correct readouts on a screen. A good performance is a balance of imperfections that make it emotional, not an expressionless computer code scientific experiments on quantizing performances to grids and other metrics show that when music is too perfected it becomes less enjoyable to listeners furthermore these grids lie there are countless times a note is dead on the grid but it sounds off time due to inconsistencies within the software as well as midi delays a sound can be off the grid but sound great In many genres of music, clipping tracks on both tape and digital is a preferred sound. Every experienced engineer has learned that sometimes the computer lies. Which also leads me to remind you that when listening back to your music, don't look at the computer screen. Until the late 90s, there was no computer screens to look at. So looking into the screen can cause us to be fooled by auditory hallucinations where our eyes are telling our ears what to hear. Take the time to give listens where you look away from your screen to perceive your music the way everyone else will hear it, with no visual representation aside from an album cover. Listening, not looking, to become a better creator. There's a great story of a tabla player whose instructor wouldn't allow the student to watch him play. Instead, he'd sit back-to-back with him during lessons, having the student explore the tabla until he found the proper technique to emulate the tone the teacher had played. This led the student to find the many nuances of the instrument, allowing a greater understanding of the instrument instead of an imitation. This also allows the player to develop their own technique instead of imitating and conforming. Ignoring what your eyes see in order to hear the nuances of a performance strengthens your standards as well as proficiency to diagnose flaws and to fix them. Getting to know what you're hearing and then using meters or grids to confirm what you hear is the only way to become proficient in zooming in on the nuances of a musical performance. The reverse order leads to poor decisions that perfect music for the sake of perfecting it superfluously. When metric-based standards ruin music, there are musicians whose standards are too concerned with the head that neglect checking with the heart for emotional resonance by solely concerning themselves with accomplishments of proficiency. The most common flaw in a guitar solo is to focus on heady accomplishments of technical proficiency instead of serving a function of the heart like taking the melodies of the song to a new place. Synth programmers will automate envelopes to show they understand synthesis. Singers want to incorporate the most challenging scale they can sing to show off their chops. All of these practices can work if they are combined with an emotional intent, but far too often they neglect to do so. The ego can be part of what takes standards in a heady direction. Often a musician asks to play a part without doing punches or employing editing strictly to prove they can do it. Even if no one else can hear the punches or editing, They'll insist on doing it to satisfy their ego. Standards that concern process instead of enhancing emotional resonance are entirely superfluous. While having a good work ethic and striving for proficiency in your work helps to improve your craft, If you concern yourself with accomplishments more than emotional resonance, you're sacrificing the most meaningful part of music. Instead, this becomes a standard that's only for the ego boost of getting past an obstacle. If a standard is judged by technical means instead of what's emotionally resonant, it's bound to become superfluous. Rating in collaborators' standards to make sure they're checked for the objective of emotional resonance is a saving grace for musicians who commonly refer to technical standards. Taste is a misnomer. You may have noticed I've avoided the word taste throughout this book. Despite it being a word that's thrown around in creative circles abundantly, I avoid it since taste is mostly contextual. I regularly joke that I don't enjoy ska music, yet my favorite record of all time, The Clash's London Calling, has ska on it. While discussions of taste are important, I think the term is commonly misallocated. What's often called distasteful is when someone chooses to paint with a color that conflicts with the way they feel an emotion. A common case of this can be one's enjoyment of both rap and rock, while a listener can enjoy both genres separately. When combined, they find the emotional combination repulsive. Many attribute this to taste, but this is actually an adverse emotional reaction to a combination that emotionally conflicts within them. Taste is commonly talked about like a border that can't be crossed. Yet we see time and time again that someone can bridge that border once the right balance of emotional palates is achieved. While many listeners frown on rap rock when Jay-Z's 99 Problems comes on, the combination compels them to bop their head in unconstrained enjoyment. The same can go for huge compressed drums that make songs sound super aggressive. If they're in a folk song, that's judged as bad taste. Usually, people who don't enjoy these qualities call it taste, but really the emotion of aggression is one the listener doesn't empathize with. What's considered taste is most often an emotional choice that diminishes the listener's resonance with a song. The different attributes we find tasteful are forever malleable and dependent on the emotional reactions we have when we hear music. This is why I avoid talking about them as much as possible, and instead focus on what we feel is emotionally resonant. In my own tastes, I love twangy guitars and country music. Yet when I hear them in heavy rock songs or hip-hop, I hit stop as fast as possible. The misnomer of taste is that we feel a certain emotional attachment to a sound. A twangy guitar to my ears makes me feel a shade of emotions, and when put in context outside of these emotions, it declines the resonance of a song to me. I can't stand gospel music. Yet when their style of vocals are in the background on the 1975 song The Sound, My taste context changes as I listen to the song repeatedly. Taste cannot be assigned to specific attributes in music. It will always be contextual depending on how an element is used emotionally. We need to remember that most innovations in music come from adding an element that was thought to be tasteless by the masses which then becomes highly resonant when used in the right context. Whether this is Dave Davies distorting a guitar for the first time, John Bonham adding room ambience to drum recordings, Justice bringing metal riffs to dance music, or whatever evolution of music you can think of, all of these innovations were tried by others and deemed tasteless until they were presented in the proper emotional context. Thanks for listening to this chapter. Stay tuned next week for another chapter. Like I said, this is available till July 1st for free. The Kindle book is 99 cents on Amazon till July 1st as well. And if you enjoy this, please, 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 please tell other people about it. That's why I'm doing this. Thank you so much for listening.